Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers in the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel, the editor of the TLS. Here in the studio is foodie fromagier Thea Lenaduzzi. Hello. 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 Thea, can you confirm, after last week's show, I emailed you and Roz and Lucy and a variety of people, it now seems, a picture <laughs> of... It got, it's gone viral. It's, the, yeah, it's gone internally <laughs> viral of the gnocchi that I made along the lines I described... Did I say we were going to work on the pronunciation of that this week? Gnocchi. How else do you pronounce it? <laughs> Nya. Gnocchi. Yeah. yeah, but <laughs> if I sound, say gnocchi, does that not sound like I'm taking the, taking the no, mickey? No, not at all. It just sounds like you're making an effort that a, you're able to a respect, execute. A respectful effort. Yeah. Gnocchi. <laughs> exactly. But no accent, just a nya. Anyway. Gnocchi, yeah. Yeah. Okay. It did it look nice? Yes, it did. It did, and what, did, it. did you give it a name? What was the, what was the name you gave it? Uh, gnocchi al redattore. What does that mean? The editor's gnocchi. Oh, <laughs> I thought it was an actual thing, it's just you taking it. <laughs> Any other recipes you want to talk about? Not particularly, okay. no. I mean, I tend not to, as you know, much to your uh, ire. Chagrin. I, I fail to follow them. I find them too difficult to follow, too frustrating. That's true. Okay, okay. okay. <laughs> do you say chagrin? I do. I mean, not often. No. But were I to, I yeah. would. I would. Difficult word, it. I think, chagrin, in some ways. It? It's hard to say without sounding... Rather like... than saying chagrin. Can you say she? We're getting into deep waters here. Now, uh, remember last week I asked you to do two things. Subscribe to the TLS and tweet your location while listening to this podcast. At the TLS is the Twitter account to do so. I hope you're now in the middle of doing both. Here are a couple of tweets we got. Dr. Neve Nigavin, which I'm sure I'm pronouncing wrong. Sorry about that. Sent a picture. Thea, did you see this picture? I did, I did. It's her listening while having a G&T and doing the Sunday ironing. I didn't notice what time it was posted. It looked, it? It looked late-ish. I think <laughs> it wasn't Sunday morning ironing. <laughs> OK. I think we can... We can... I mean, I'm not here to judge no, at all. No, exactly. It's, it's her weekend. <laughs> uh, Paul Vermans, on his weekend, accused us of being log rollers and said he was eating regional cheese in defiance. Why is uh, that in defiance? How does that... How? I don't know. I, I, I mean, I'm all for eating regional cheese. But not so. in defiance, in, in repose. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, Paul Vermans is on a beach in Queenscliff, Victoria, which he also sent a picture of. Did you see that? I didn't see Looked that. Looked lovely. No. 
people, I think people who listen to this, they're in lovely places generally. <laughs> Keep them coming, they do give us good cheer. This week, we'll be discussing the state of Spain following a little mini section in the paper, including essays by Felipe Fernandez Armesto and Adela Gooch. Hispanic editor Rupert Short is in the studio, and alongside Thea, it means there will be some exuberantly accurate pronunciation of Spanish words. What's your Spanish word? Are you going to get into the spirit of it? Or? No, I'm not. I just feel I, I feel foolish doing it. But I think you two. I think will... you need to to confront this. Just just not be frightened. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's see. Let's see what happens. Uh, we'll also be considering the case for more veganism and our problematic relationship with farmed animals, especially dairy cows. Siobhan McGee has been looking into this and will be on the line. And finally, we'll celebrate the commonplace book. Dwight Garner, the New York Times literary critic, has been compiling one of his own for 40-odd years, and it is a thing of absolute glory. He's calling in from New York to tell us more. It's easy living in Britain, or indeed perhaps the US, to believe that we have a monopoly on incompetence, on political pygmies, on a parlous future. But what about Spain? It was one of Western Europe's last dictatorships, finally dismantled in the mid-1970s. Democracy triumphed and in 1978 a new constitution was unveiled. Forty years later, according to Felipe Fernandez Armesto, this week the outlook looks glum. He says this, a sclerotic government, national and provincial legislatures immobilised by an intractable electoral system, rage at the unfair regional distribution of state costs, obdurate and unreasoning secessionism at the periphery, impotence at the centre. What, he asks, went wrong? Well, to tell us is the TLS Hispanic editor, Rupert Short, who also moonlights in the area of religion too, of course. He'll talk us through this and the other Spanish-inflected pieces in the paper. Welcome to you, Rupert. Thank you. So, let's try and set the context. I, I wonder how much in Britain, generally, we think about Spain and Spanish history. I think it's probably not very much. What was it like in the early 70s, the end of Francoism? Yeah, you're right. The subject is very neglected. The The early 70s was, as you might imagine, like uh, winter before spring. But to adapt the analogy, the landscape was haunted. There were lots of buried bodies and lots of ghosts. How many long had it been under a dictatorship? Nearly 40 years. Having said that, the... Big mistake, I think, of liberals, Whigs in Britain, elsewhere in Europe and, and in the uh, Anglosphere is to think of the Spanish Civil War as a dress rehearsal for, for World War Two. That's to say as a simple fight between democracy and dictatorship, between uh, good and, and evil and... It's not nearly as simple as that. <laughs> no. So why did it end? What was the force that brought democracy to Spain? Is it, was, it a revolution? Is it called a revolution? No, not, not at all. It was Franco's death and the awareness that Spain was going to move towards some kind of constitutional monarchy. I think that in his small mind, Franco thought that the country would continue to, to be ruled by conservatives in his own image. But thanks to the good stewardship of, of King Juan Carlos, they moved fairly rapidly towards uh, a democracy along the lines that we would understand it. Stig mentioned the word revolution and isn't part of the part of the problems now seem to be rooted in the fact that there was no 
clear break. There was no sort of revolution. It was a very smooth, really, relatively smooth transition. So accounts weren't settled and, and that sort of thing. Exactly right. Introduced was something called the Pacto de Olvido, which was basically a way of trying to let bygones be bygones in order that the, the country could move on. Yeah, like a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Uh, well, no, the exact opposite of of that, you see, because there was no proper no se- settling of accounts. I mean, Franco had made absolutely no attempt at all after the Civil War to promote national reconciliation. So tens of thousands of people were allowed to, to die in labour camps. And there was heavy political repression. So you, you can understand why, why people on the left particularly those who lost elder relatives on the Republican side, feel extremely hard done by. Why the ill feeling is fairly evenly distributed is that those who supported Franco still feel vindicated up to a certain point. And this is something that we find particularly difficult to to understand. But I think a a seed of an explanation comes in a a very sophisticated work like George Orwell's Homage to to Catalonia, where he explains pretty ruthlessly just how savage the, the left was as well as the right. And those of us with Republican sympathies who don't have a good word to say about Franco do nevertheless have some sobering realities to face up to. One point being that there may well have been a second civil war between elements of the left if the Republic had won. Another is that if the Republic had won, it's a a very melancholy realisation, but I I think a, a, a fairly glaring one all the same is that a country already half destroyed by 1939 would have been totally destroyed by Hitler For all his utter, utter awfulness, Franco did play one blinder in keeping Spain out of the Second World War. So why are we not talking about a happy ending here? Because at one level, Spain has this moment, democracy triumphs, it then joins the EU, it's part of NATO, it becomes a part of modern Western Europe. Is it as gloomy as all that now? Felipe Fernandez Armesto's piece is rather gloomy, and the other pieces, Adela Gucci's piece, is quite gloomy as well. What's the problem in Spain? Yes, Fe- Felipe Fernandez Armesto's review is exceptionally good, very, very penetrating on some of the the underground streams that have, have, have produced the, the conflict that we have. I'm very um, grateful to him for talking about the narrative of, of the two Spains, because what you could say in a nutshell is that what happened in the 1930s and what's happening now is the latest episodes transposed into new keys of conflicts that have been going on for for many centuries. And that's left versus right? Left versus right, cultural diversity versus cultural uniformity. You'll recall that Spain was ruled largely by Muslims for six or seven hundred years and so on the one hand you have an idea of Christian reconquest, of reclaiming what was ours, of shaking off the invader and restoring Spain to its pristine Catholic homogeneity. On the other hand, you have a narrative of of diversity. I mean, when I lived in Spain as a child during the 1970s, I went to the Alhambra 
of course, which uh, our colleague Robert Irwin has described as the most beautiful building in the world. That's a very, very plain mark of the enormous Islamic footprint in Spain. I also went to a city like Toledo, which it contains a building affectionately known as St. Mary's Synagogue because it was a synagogue before it became a church, but it was it was actually built by Muslims, and the style of the building, which is exceptionally beautiful, has the traits of a mosque as much as of a synagogue or a church. And just walking round that building, you get a very, very vivid sense of the rich ecosystem socially that was Spain during the Middle Ages. It's an interesting point because I've read articles saying Spain is a really it's different from the rest of Europe because it's not had a rise of a hard right. It's not had the intolerance towards immigrants that you see in Britain with Brexit or France with Le Pen or Austria or Germany with what's the, what's the Alternative for Deutschland. Yeah, yeah. EFD. Spain is held up as an example of the opposite of that. Is that not true? So why are we not talking about this as, a, as diversity kind of triumphing? Well, I think if, if we were to spool forward to the present day, one of the ways in which the centrifugal forces in Spanish society were kept under control after the accession of Juan Carlos was a bit of a, a spending spree. The successive governments were fairly profligate, there was an awful lot of spending on infrastructure, some white elephants, airports where not a single plane ever landed or or took off. And of course, the the chickens came home to roost in 2008. And the financial crisis was much worse in Spain than in the UK, for example, largely because of the um, deleterious effects of the euro. What that gave rise to was more left-wing populism than a populism of the right. So Podemos, which resembles Syriza in Greece in some ways, has been the the face of populism. There is a hard right group called Vox in Spain, but you're right, it hasn't had very much uh, success. And an awful lot of conflict these days, as, as you also know, focuses on identity. And in Spain, that means nationalism. As we said, it's forty. It's a forty-year anniversary for the constitution, but it's also a one-year anniversary since the the illegal referendum declared in Catalonia. Can we talk about that briefly? Devolution being the kind of the, the main the main concern, really, I suppose, for for Spain. At, at yes, we're reviewing alongside the articles by Felipe and Adela Gooch a piece by Fernando Cervantes, noticing John Eliot's new book, Scots and and Catalans, where he he compares these two polities. I wouldn't want to sound complacent, but I do think that the Scottish settlement has. Uh, been somewhat more attractive for the Scots than the, than the deal that the Catalans have, have got down the centuries. Again, we're talking about an awful lot of accumulated resentment under Franco. The Catalan language was even banned in, in public. And so, as you might expect, there's been this drift on the part of nationalists, the hardline nationalists, who aren't by any means a majority, but they're vocal, there are a lot of opinion formers among them, a lot of middle-class people in Barcelona and Girona in particular, who have been rattling the bars of their cage very hard. And a lot of people would add that the 
right-wing government in, in Madrid that uh, was ousted after a no-confidence motion last summer has been a bit of a recruiting sergeant for nationalism by trying to demonise it or, or look the other way. And does it have a future? Because Scotland, when we had the great debate, and maybe post-Brexit the debate returns, but Scotland always, the dream founded on the harsh reality of economics. Scotland ultimately didn't really have a solution for currency. It didn't really have a big enough economy to stand alone. Its big internal market was England, and therefore separating further from it was a bad idea. And with oil prices going away, there is really no economic argument for independence. Is there an economic argument for independence in Catalonia? No, not really. I think the vast majority of middle-of-the-road pragmatic people who think a little bit more about their pensions and their savings than about highfalutin rhetoric know that it's a non-starter. I mean, in the first place, the rest of Spain would be so massively resentful that all Catalonian goods would be boycotted. There's a much more febrile sense of the unity of the country in Spain than in the UK. You'll perhaps know that nationalist parties are they're not even allowed in countries like France or, or Germany. If, if you try to set up a party campaigning for the independence of Bavaria, you, you'd be ruled uh, out of court. And Spain has its nationalists like we do But on the other hand, there is an enormous sense that the territorial integrity of the country cannot be violated. When we're talking economics, the argument, if I can adopt the stance of a reporter rather than an advocate, the Catalan nationalists on the one hand would say, we're the richest region of Spain, we pay so much of our taxes to the centre, we pay a lot of money that gets frittered away in poorer regions. The rest of Spain would tend to say, yes, but your wealth was only created in the first place because of support from the rest of the country and all sorts of favourable trading conditions. And so the row goes on. But I'm not sure that an application for EU membership on the part of an independent Catalonia would uh, see the light of day. I think this probably has to be the final question. In terms of the demographics behind regionalists and, and, and people advocating for the independence of the Basque region or Catalonia, is it predominantly a youth movement? Is it generations who came after, you know, the bad days of Franco, who, who missed their fight? Because I think about this a lot in terms of Italy as well. So I wonder to what extent there's an overlap. There is a youth element for the simple reason that textbooks have promoted what some would see as a strong nationalist position, others would see as a grievance narrative. There's a lot of activism among the youth, but there are an awful lot of older supporters of of Catalan independence as well, even though, as I say, they remain in a minority. It's funny, in this country, we just take for granted national integrity because we don't know very much about you know Italy is is not as old as Notts County my history teacher mm. used to used to tell me but most people just assume Italy has always been Italy and you kind of assume that Spain's always had a, an entire uniform integrity but that's not really the case either there was Castile and Aragon and things like that and like you said the occupation by Muslims yeah. it's, always, it's, it's always had a fractured past it, it? it has I mean under Ferdinand and Isabella these kingdoms were united the sad thing is at the time the settlement was very like Scotland in a way I mean these kingdoms retained their own parliaments and their own institutions sadly after the war of the Spanish succession at the beginning of the 18th century which was won by the the Bourbons, as you know. 
a much more French-style absolute rule model was imposed on the country and Catalonia's institutions were dissolved. That's really where the um, sense of grievance goes back to. The problem is, talking to you, Rupert, I'm always absolutely gripped by a sense of my own ignorance but it's always uh, fascinating to, to just to fill it in a little a little bit uh, rupert short thank you very much indeed how would you like to look five years younger in a clinical study people that had volume added with juvederm voluma xc in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment look younger feel like you add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with juvederm voluma xc Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Velour XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Animals are well represented in the global cultural imaginary in totems, myths, morality tales and so on. By extension, zoological affinities, Siobhan McGee points out in this week's TLS, have a tradition in anthropology, think of Claude Lévy Strauss's statement, that animals are good to think with, and his use of plants and animals to underline something special in our own humanity, that we can appreciate these wonders. But essential in such equations is the wildness of the animals and plants referred to. That is, we tend not to ascribe in our thoughts literature and art much worth, symbolic or otherwise, to a chicken, say, or a monoculture crop such as rapeseed, wheat or palm oil. And it is with this imbalance in mind that two recent books, The Cow with Ear Tag number 1389 by Catherine Gillespie and Palma Africana by Michael Tausig, take up the problem of how we write and think about animals and plants that are farmed. The great difficulty in this lies in the violence that can seem inherent in these relationships. Because this is not about observing fleeting presences in hedgerows or dashing through forests. Rather here, we're talking about the daily existence of other animals and the mechanical mass production of crops within the broader ecosystem. Siobhan McGee has reviewed both books for the TLS and joins us on the phone now. Hello, Siobhan. 
Hello. Let's start, if we may, with Catherine Gillespie's book, The Cow with Ear Tag 1389. The focus is on cows reared for milk, the dairy cow, as opposed to cows reared for their meat. So there are, I think, a number of reasons why Gillespie might have made that choice. But how does she explain it here? I mean, if you think about anybody who's had an experience of being a vegetarian, as I did when I was younger, I remember if I went to a restaurant that didn't have much choice, for vegetarians, you know, what often you can end up eating is something like, you know, chips with grated cheese <laughs> on top. Sounds and lovely. It, it, it is, it is. <laughs> and the idea is that whereas we think about meat production and we, we know that that's going to involve, obviously, the killing of an animal, we think of dairy production as something that's sort of a byproduct of the, the cow, so to speak, sort of everyday life is being made for us. So there's a kind of difference in how we picture meat production and how we picture dairy production. And Gillespie's point of departure in her book is trying to sort of go behind the scenes and thinking about what actually happens to these animals, these cows that are producing dairy, and shows that it's not as sort of wholesome as we might like to imagine. Actually, our, our cultural recognition goes further than that. It's not just neutral on dairy, it's positively enthusiastic, the... the image of dairy in our minds is associated with wholesomeness with health with a kind of maternal benevolence isn't it and actually the reality which is presumably Catherine Gillespie's point is so very different from that yes and and she and this is a very sort of nuanced book where she points out that there are ranges of sort of uh, levels of, of ethics in the practices that surround dairy but what she wants to show is that capitalism tends to have this sort of depersonalizing logic that means that we almost, despite having access to information about how dairy is produced, we tend to, as you say, kind of choose this kind of sunny picture of dairy instead just because it suits us better as consumers. I suppose as well with dairy, there's the the ubiquity of it as compared to red meat. I mean, more people will consume dairy either knowingly or not than would say that they consume red meat. And the lifespan of, of... A dairy cow is, I think, five to six years of a horrible life for the most part if we're talking industrial farming. And then a beef cow, I think it's one or two years. And then there's the cows that are raised to um, mate, which have 10 years of life. But so the dairy cow really does have a pretty horrendous lot. Yes. And there are these sort of, uh, you know, things I wasn't really aware of, although now they seem intuitive having read the book. Think about what a sort of occupational hazard of being a dairy cow, something like mastitis, can be something that's incredibly painful and some cows would be just sort of treated ethically for that given medication and so on but others Gillespie shows are just left with this horrible painful condition. And that's that's true of the cow that gives this book its its title isn't it cow with ear tag 1389. That's right Gillespie sees this cow at what's called a cull auction and so she's talking about you know if you're a dairy cow you have this short and strenuous life where you're being inseminated you're producing milk and you're kind of growing old before before your time essentially but once you're no longer kind of productive then you're sort of bound for the the slaughter or even in this case whether we should be shocked or not this cow was sold to a a veterinary teaching hospital as a vena puncture and rectal exam teaching tool yes i mean that's a really kind of granular as they say image isn't it um you know one of the things that she uh, gillespie's showing is you know there's a kind of um you could draw a kind of diagram if you wanted of the kind of standard pathways or commodity chains even that these cows go through but actually there's also scope for these cows to have these kind of interesting and sometimes upsetting 
aspects to their biographies that mean that they end up in these quite unusual situations. Does Gillespie, does she consider traditional farming, subsistence models, smaller scale dairy farms, you know, that try to minimise cruelty towards the cows by keeping the calves with them for longer and so on. Is she against dairy per se or against industrialised dairy? She's particularly against industrialised dairy. Um, I would say she's sort of not against dairy in general, but but what she she doesn't like is the kind of lazy kind of cultural thinking uh, in the US as well as in lots of other countries, you know, just assuming that milk is something that we have to have. One of the things that she's picking up on in the introductory chapter is the idea that uh, you know milk is absolutely central to childhood nutrition. And in a sense, you know, if you're told in childhood that you have to have milk and that's part of you know not only is milk kind of a delicious treat, but it's something that's going to make you big and strong, then it's difficult for you to sort of go backwards in that thinking as you progress to to adulthood. Is this an argument for veganism? Is this the point that there's the context we should be reading books like this in, that ultimately there is a gradual building of a consensus of reducing meat and dairy consumption even to the point of stopping it entirely for environmental reasons, for health reasons, for ethical reasons? Is this to be read in that context, do you feel? Yes, in that, you know, this is part of a movement for people to be more, you know, mindful, to use a, a popular word these days, of what they're they're eating. I think, you know, there's a kind of identity element to veganism, but actually a lot of discourses in places like the US and the UK at the moment focus on initiatives like Meat Free Monday and Meatless Monday that are about, as you say, thinking about the size of the, the dairy industry, for example, or uh, industrialised meat industries and trying to cut down on that. So in a sense, I think I think it's only been fairly recently, as far as I can remember, that people have talked about cutting down the amount of meat they eat for environmental reasons, rather than becoming a vegetarian or a vegan per se. So I think there is quite a lot of nuance in these arguments. We should move on to Michael Taussig's book. How do we move from the politics of, of cattle to the politics of palm oil? That's the subject of his book. Well, there are a lot of cows in Michael Taussig's <laughs> <laughs> as well Michael Taussig you know who, who's I would say you know one of the, the the most sort of prominent anthropologists we have these days has been doing research in Colombia since the very late 60s and people's uh, interactions with with cattle living with them and eating them and so on that seems to have been part of his sort of everyday experiences of being in Colombia for all these decades. But the difference has been what in this, this period of change in Colombia, politically whilst he's been there, um, or at least been visiting there, there have been various types of commodities that have been at the centre of different debates within Colombia and internationally. And all of these debates and all these commodities index what happens to human beings who are who are making these commodities and what happens to in the case of the the cattle or in case of the palm oil uh, what happens to non-humans palm oil is at the moment certainly everyone seems to be talking about it. it's a hugely controversial product what what is Taussig's main issue with it is it is it environmental you know the deforestation is it to do with employment ethics allegations of slave and child labor is it part of a much broader critique of monoculture crops what, what's he hoping to show in in this book i think the kind of umbrella concern he has is a question that sort of affects all of the above which is what do you do when you're not mindful about what you're doing to a society or to a landscape and so growth happens at such a prodigious rate that you have no power to uh, you know reverse 
what you've been doing if you see that it's it's uh, doing people and things wrong. The sort of statistic that he uses a lot and that's being used a lot in relation to the marketing of the book is that by 2020, world production will be double what it was in 2000 for palm oil. So that's a, a crazily large growth. Palm oil is a sort of Venn diagram of human rights violations to do with rural people losing jobs, given that uh, sort of with technological advancements, you don't actually need many human employees to get quite a large yield of palm oil. But of course, there's also a huge sort of deforestation problem that arises when people can make a big profit from having one type of um, plantation or crop. People are more likely to disable the biodiversity in that area by taking away the habitat. Uh, Habitat. Habitat, habitat, sorry. No Habitats of other birds, animals and plant lives. Well, what's the solution here? Because it seems to me that one solution that we're perhaps growing in this country is greater awareness. So will the market dictate this? That ultimately, we will all ask for either less meat and dairy and or better produced meat and dairy. So we will demand more of the supply chain, we'll be more conscious of the supply chain, and we will therefore collectively affect a reduction by reducing the demand. That seems unlikely in the sort of markets that palm oil operates in where, where cheapness will always be the order of the day, or at least in the foreseeable future? I know there are movements towards more sustainable palm oil production, but I think the jury's out for how sort of promising these seem. I think, I think the question that also links back to dairy, but also links back to other discussions that people are having a lot of the moment about, say, uh, you know, do we buy from Amazon or not, is where essentially should this massive amount of power over other people's and sometimes animals' situations, where should that responsibility lie? Is there such a thing as sort of responsible capitalism or ethical capitalism? Or should onus be placed and responsibility be placed on governments, for example, to crack down on uh, these, you know, arguable abuses? Well, big questions. Thank you very much, Vaughan McGee. We'll have to leave it there. Thanks for joining us. It does feel that the spirit of the age, Mm. veganism is around far more than 10 years ago. And even 10 years ago, it was seen as hectoring and marginal and slightly mean-spirited and smug. You know, someone would throw red paint over something and they'd all be very pleased with themselves. Whereas now, the tone seems to have been shifted and it seems to be very rational. Like The environmental problems of big dairy herds are significant meat sometimes isn't that good for you if you eat too much of it there are concerns about habitats there are concerns about how people are paid we do care more about supply chains that all sounds very optimistic Mm. but i just wonder is that going to be enough well i mean i i think one of the main worries is that these debates are being carried out on on social media and and through and that can be a really good thing because it means that obviously supermarkets prick up their ears and actually pay attention when there are social media influences and people jumping on and 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 whatnot but i suppose the worry is that we can demonize one product we can get so wrapped up in palm oil for example being you know responsible for all of this this badness and yes it is but you know Likewise, a few months ago, there was a study released by the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, which suggested that the alternatives to palm oil, that is rapeseed, soy, corn, they would take up to 10 times as much land and require more water. And, you know, the issues around the mechanisation of of what used to be human labour, they're still there as well. So it's never simple, basically. No, that's right. And, And the growing of a conscience in this 
is a wonderful thing. Yeah. Is a wonderful thing. And I do thing. think it is happening. Yeah. I think that most people now, I mean, it happened with battery farming a bit. Yeah. And so it's very rare that you'd see a battery egg, mm. but you'd probably eat mayonnaise that's made with battery eggs without realising it still. So it's how far this is willing to go to make changes. And it has to go right up to the governments and it has to be yeah. international and, you know, lobbyists have to be You're never going to become a vegan. Away. I think about it all the time. Well, I think we all know where my downfall would be. Yeah, <laughs> but I, I, I think about no. it. I think about it a lot, a lot. No, it's not. It has, it's got egg in it. Yeah, it has egg in it. I mean, you can buy vegan alternatives for all of these things. It's it's difficult. It's so bound up in culture and 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 laziness and and habit priorities. Uh, but I suppose that what and I'm sure I'm not. You know, I'm not alone. There are many people who who talk this way about how they'd love to be vegan and and haven't yet. But I suppose the difference now, where we are now, is that we know what we're doing wrong. And we feel guilty about it, and that's a big part of... The bottom line is you like cheese too much. Yeah. (laughs) Let's leave it there. Here's a quote you might want to note down from Emerson. Make your own Bible, select and collect all those words and sentences that in all your reading have been to you like blasts of a trumpet out of Shakespeare, Seneca, Moses, John and Paul. Well, literary critic Dwight Garner has done just that. And like many of us who wish we'd kept a note of all the interesting, provocative, daft or deft things we read, he has succeeded over four decades in keeping an eye out for words and sentences that work upon him like the very blasts of a trumpet. The result is his commonplace book, and it is a thing of utter beauty. We're running a couple of pages from it in the paper this week, and it contains gems like... I'm only going to do four... If you want to know what God thinks of money, just look at the people he gave it to, Dorothy Parker. Oh fuck, not another elf. Hugo Dyson, as J.R.R. Tolkien read aloud an early draft of The Lord of the Rings. Nothing risque, nothing gained. That's brilliant, that. Alexander Walcott. And from Philip Larkin, I have no enemies, but my friends don't like me. But even this is to do Dwight Garner a disservice. The true pleasure comes from the way in which he combines the quotes and makes them talk to each other in their proximity. He joins us on the line now. Dwight, hello. Hey, it's good to be here, Sig. Why in the world did you start doing this? And when you started doing this, did you think you'd be carrying on for for decades ever after? You know, I had no idea, but I've always been a huge underliner. I mean, some of us are, and I I sort of tear my books up and turn pages down and... and, um, you know, underscore bits. After doing that for years, I realized maybe I should go back and look at one of some of what those things were. And I started to type them down or write them down into books at first and later type them down. And, and now all, all these years later, I have this sort of massive accumulation. Can you recall what the first one you wrote down was? I mean, it feels like th- there would be a lot of pressure on that first one. Somehow. Oh, God, I can't. You know, it was probably one of two books. It was probably either Jack the Rock's On the Road or less impressively, probably Still Life with Woodpecker, that 70s novel by uh, Tom Robbins, a hippie novel. Oh, yeah. And Martin Amos, I remember, writes that he, he writes a line in the margin and when anything's good and he says therefore the perfect book would just have a single line down the margin where every single <laughs> sentence is is worthy worthy of note but it's quite an effort then Dwight to go and do that which is kind of casual vandalism at one level to sort of take the time to type it all up you know it started as sort of a personal a personal joy for me I, I liked it for a while and as I went on in my career and sort of became a, a literary critic and a writer, I realized that this was sort of a great help to me. I think of it, as I say in my, in, in my introduction, that it's kind of like my external hard drive. It's, you know, what's there for me when I need it. As a young person, as a young reader, I realized that the essayists and critics I liked the most 
people like Orwell and Pauline Kael and, and Hitchens and Paul Fussell always had great facts and quotes at their fingertips, and I liked how they sprinkled them in, sort of like pepper. Where do you draw from? Does anything go? Anything goes. It certainly I'm seems reading. like anything goes, Dwight, from, from, the, from, the, from the collection that we run. Well, one problem with most quote books is they don't have the word fuck often enough in them. Yeah. <laughs> or, or, or shit. Or, and, I, you know, I work for, for the New York Times, you know, a, a terrific newspaper, I think the best in the world. But one of the problems with working for the New York Times is that inevitably the best line in any novel has one of those words in it. And, so I, and, and the Times won't print those words. And so I... I I sort of saved them up and put them here. And the TLS happily does, <laughs> in, including William Send S. Send us all your expertise. <laughs> William Burroughs from Naked Lunch, Confusion Hath Fuck His Masterpiece, which, which, made, which made me laugh. How do you go about ordering this? Because there is an evil genius to you here, Dwight, because they're not just an outpouring of funny expletive-ridden quotes. You are theming them, you're collecting them around ideas, aren't you? Yeah, you know, I, people encourage me to do, do it in sort of, you know, by category, to put, you know, a section for food or a section for automobiles. And I thought, you know, I know what books like that are like, and, they're, and I enjoy them, but I wanted something that read more like a poem. You know, I wanted something where the quotes played off of each other, and you might have a quote, you know, about food that led directly somehow into a quote about metaphor. And, and there are just ways to, you know, when you have these kind of quotes in your mind, they play in your mind anyway. When I'm writing something, I'm always thinking of some of the quotes in my book, and I wanted to sort of let them free to play against each other. Is this an answer to the internet? It occurred to me that at one level, all quotes are kind of discoverable, and we all know that if you're sort of looking for something, you can search a couple of words and you'll find it. But what the internet doesn't do is curate them together. So is this the kind of the answer to things that AI can't do, the things that the internet can't do, that Google can't even do? It's a bit of the human in, in the collecting. Yeah, perhaps a bit. I mean, the internet has been a huge help for quotations, but it's also ruined them, you know, because you can't, there's so few sites you can trust. And if you look at the internet, you'll come to think that every quote, everything ever said was said by either, you know, Tolstoy or, or Churchill or Gandhi. George Orwell. Yeah, yeah, George Orwell. Um, that, Orwell, exactly. That kills me. There's one on. There's one on Twitter, which is the Orwell one, which is uh, news is what someone somewhere doesn't want you to write. Everything else is public relations. Exactly. And of course, public exactly. relations as a term didn't exist when when Orwell, I don't think, was writing. And yet, <laughs> you just see these smug people go, as Orwell said. And no, he didn't. Right. And, and you know, one of the things I want this book to do, I hope, is to introduce a flood of new quotations in, in, into our mental landscape. I feel like the books we have right now are somewhat limited. And as someone who reads for a living, I'm sort of at the, uh, at the uh, front of the prow, you know, I'm, I'm at the front of the boat in terms of reading new stuff and, and, and gleaning from, from newer material. And there's a certain argument that quotations are good for you in a sort of green vegetables good for you. You're kind of railing against that, that you're not necessarily just in it. In, front of, in, in the same paper as this, uh, Sam Leith has reviewed a book of speeches of note. And his concern with that is they're all just a bit inspirational yeah. and there aren't enough down and dirty speeches or realistic <laughs> speeches or speeches that actually might resonate in a less elevated arena. You're, you're quite keen on that as well, aren't you? Yeah, this was actually the main purpose behind my, my sort of doing this project is that, you know, most books of quotes, at least, you know, in the classics like Bartlett's are, don't fall into this trap for the movie. But most books of quotations lean on, you know, the upbeat and, and the sort of, you know, on aphorisms and things you want to stitch into throw pillows. And I, I was looking for a different kind of quote, you know, something more real. A lot of my quotes are about things like hangovers <laughs> and being stuck in the wrong place. Arnold Schwarzenegger looks like a condom full of walnuts. 
said Clive, Clive James. James. Yeah, of course. The great Clive James. <laughs> Who's been great for you? Do you have? There must be some writers that have you started out with 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 Kerouac. But who's who, who is the most quotable or are among the most quotable? You know, I have a lot of John Updike. I have a lot of really. It's California writer Eve Babbitt mm. who is extraordinarily quotable about almost everything she touches. Cyril Connolly seems to pop up quite a lot for you. Certainly Cyril Connolly. Yeah. Yeah, his, his book, Enemies of Promise, is a favorite of mine, as well as The Unquiet Grave. There's a black writer being rediscovered in America. Her name is Fran Ross. Who wrote a book called Oreo that I just mm. find endlessly smart and charming. And there are a lot of Fran Ross quotes, a lot of Anne Sexton quotes. Yeah. Um, you know, I tend to like writers, novelists, who are hard and specific and, you know, who have things to say about whatever topic comes into view in their novels. Um, so they're shrewd observations about, about every aspect of life. And those are the kind of things that I hope to put in this in this book. Well, is that true of Updike, I suppose, as, uh, particularly? I mean, one of the great tragedies in, in all of literature is the fact that Updike carried on writing for 20 years, <laughs> longer than he should have done. Yeah, it's true. It happens, it happens to a lot of people, but he, he more than most. So I bet your, your delvings will be from early or middle Updike rather from... Yeah, you know, my favourite Updikes are the Henry Beck novels, which, you know, yeah. Up, Updike never liked to write about novelists in his work because he thought, well, you know, what does a reader want to read about a, like, like about a novelist? And so he put all of his thoughts about being a writer into these three books about this fictional writer, Henry Beck. So those books are especially uh, incisive, I think. We got a one-star review for this podcast, Dwight, because of my criti- my regular persistent criticism of postmodern novels. Which was that I said there's a very, only a handful of postmodern novels that I think are worth reading, and there's nothing worse than writing about writing about writing. You're slightly more sophisticated there than I am on, on the subject. Which, <laughs> At least slightly more European, maybe. Yeah, but where, where do you stand on this, Dwight, uh, on the greats? How much should writers be staring at their navel? You know, terrific writing is terrific writing. There, there are some new younger writers, Sheila Hetty from Canada and mm. Otessa Mosfeg from the United States and Rachel Cusk course in England and they tend to write about writers and you know their writing is so impossibly good that I don't care what they write about. Yeah. <laughs> all right, all right, yes. all right. Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking particularly I, I got I get particularly exercised by uh, Paul Oster. That I you know I like the early stuff before every character is called Paul A, who is a writer who sits in a study looking at characters written by Paul A and Mr. A. And you just think, for God's sake, come on. Well, he falls into my, what I said earlier, I like writing that's hard and specific. And increasingly, his writing has gotten, you know, soft and and very airy. And and that's not my favourite sort of thing. Although I try to be open to everything. See, you're open-minded. And you're open-minded, aren't you, dear? (laughs) There's just a conscious... smiling at me. Well, there's just a conscious... I'm just, just judging myself. Just, just, just finally, Dwight, any favourite quotes? I've read out some. You must have a couple that you, that you trade on. It's like the, the um, message for your anti-pillow. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I love that Jane Jacobs line. Go on, read that out while Dwight thinks of his. Um, which says, uh, how to make a West Village martini, according to Jane Jacobs. Pour it in anything, stir with finger. <laughs> <laughs> she was the best. <laughs> I place a total embargo on dragons. Clive James, a man after my own heart. Yeah, I liked Peter Cook responding to the boast, I'm writing a novel, neither am I. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I also, I also like, you know, and off he fucked. <laughs> <laughs> according, according to Kingsley Amos. 
<laughs> after telling someone to fuck off. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this is very clever, though. I, mean, I don't want to give the, uh, uh, the impression that because we're just laughing at the swear word, which is important in life generally, in my view. There is something clever here, though, Dwight, because the, there is a little narrative. Like you say, there is a poem here. It's a, sort of, it's a long, diffuse poem, isn't it? It is. You know, and a lot of the, a lot of the, a lot of the lines are about loneliness. You no, know? a lot of the lines are about death. A lot of the lines are like very dark things. And I'm a depressive at times, and I tend to like fiction that, you know, deals with the real stuff of life. And I, you know, that's the stuff that I sort of have gone for in here. You know, there's a line from Flannery O'Connor that I quite like. And she says in a line that I print, um, you shall know the truth and it will make you odd. <laughs> and, um, you know, that, that, that in a way is the defining quote. Yeah, I think that, let's leave it there. I'll, I'll read one more, which uh, really cheered me up. No generalization is wholly true. Not even this one. Which is so good, it's been attributed to both Voltaire and Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. <laughs> Dwight Garner, what a great pleasure it is to speak to you. Thank you so much. Thanks. Fun to be here. It's great, isn't it? It's really, it is really enjoyable. And as you said, because we're laughing so much, it makes it seem like it's it's not, you know, a, a beautiful and, and, and important thing as well. But it is like the way they all enter into conversation with each other. Yeah. Nods here and there. It's it beautiful. Is. Uh, I'm going to stop quoting. That's all we have time for this week. If you want to read some more of them, you can uh, get it in the paper. Our thanks to Dwight Garner, Rupert Short and Siobhan McGee. Make sure you do get a copy of this week's TLS. It is a real corker. And do tweet us your exotic or mundane listening locations. Photographs are very welcome. Next week, there's a Russian theme to our thoughts. All being well and in the absence of Russia starting a third world war in the interim. Until then, from Thea and from me, goodbye. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. 